Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things. All while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Hola, hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Cheese Made podcast. I mean, I know I say this every week that I'm so excited for our guests, but it's always true. It's always true because, you know, one of the things we have Vanessa, first of all, we have Vanessa Lopez with Exclusive Capital Lending. Hola, Vanessa. ¿Cómo está hoy? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for asking. I'm really excited to be here with you. Well, I'm excited to have you because right before I was hitting play, we were talking about you know, the need for not just financial literacy, but how you leverage that into buying a home. And I was just telling you, like, I'm kind of in that season as well in regards to buying a home and what does that mean? And I think it's so important that we know how to do that. So I'm really excited to have you here because I think a lot of information is not necessarily relayed in the way that it should be so often for our community. So to have you here is very, very exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And this is just something I've been doing for a long time and I feel really uh, passionate about, especially because we're in the age of information where, you know, TikTok is full of like how to buy a house with zero dollars and how to buy a house with money that's not yours. And it's like, how about we just learn how to buy a house? Because often those strategies end up with a catch or just with something on the other side of it that people aren't quite expecting or kind of an unrealistic expectation of the outcome. And I think it leaves people often very disappointed. And I think uh, with proper planning and coordinating and goal setting, I just think that buying a home is just a very attainable, very regular, doesn't have to be that difficult process if people just prepare. Yes, I agree. And I think in it's, I feel like it's becoming harder and harder. But before we get into all of that, Chisme, I want to start, we always start with the wine and then I'll give your bio. So I don't know if you happen to be having any wine for you with you to this evening. Uh, all right. What are you drinking? This is a cab from Paso Robles 2020. It was a gift. I'm usually a Pinot Noir girl, like a very simple Mark West or a Josh wine girl, but this is what I had in my fridge and it's pretty good. So I yes. also, just to share with you. Oh, well, I, I like Josh wine too. I like those other ones too. So today I'm drinking because I'm keeping it light today. I was telling you I've been battling a headache for the last couple of days, but we can get through this. <laughs> Uh, I'm actually drinking the Para Wine 2019 Chardonnay. Sometimes like with this, it's so hard. So there we go. You have to get the right angle. There we go. 
And so I literally just poured myself a very small glass to get through. So, salud. This is good ASMR. <laughs> yes. Ah, uh, nice. Perfect and nice just for a light thing. So, let me read your bio. Uh, Vanessa Lopez was introduced to the mortgage industry in 2013 throughout her studies in business at Florida International University, where she graduated in 2015. The following year, she received her mortgage loan origination license and continued to work under some notable names in the Miami mortgage scene. Learning from the bottom up, she got the opportunity to match master each competent of the mortgage process, each component. Oh my gosh, see what happens when you have a headache? each component of the mortgage process and grew her clientele as a loan originator. She mastered her system and embarked on her journey with her own brand, now known as Executive Capital Lending. So my first foray into that, I actually used to be a loan opener. That was my first like real job after high school. Okay, so you've, you've dabbled in the industry a little bit. I have, I have. It's been so long though. I mean, that was like, a, that was a literal teenager at that point. And we mostly did VA loans, VA and FHA loans at that point. My first job was VA refis only. Ah, Mm -hmm. yes. Well, you know, here's the thing. And and I'm uh, going to read your why up front because I think this just has to do so much with what we're going to have, you know, what we're going to talk about. And you say your why is to break barriers and create room in the mortgage world where you and others like you don't feel so alone, confused, or silenced. You want to prove to yourself and others in this that this is a space where other Latinos and women belong, whether it be investing or in sales. And we were talking, you were saying there's financial literacy, but then there's like when you're going into like a home buying process, it's a whole kind of different animal. It's not just about financial literacy. It's figuring out where to buy, what to buy, rates keep going up, how much do you need down, all of these pro, I mean, okay, my first question is, is this something that your family ever talked about growing up in regards to home ownership and what that means? Or is this like, I know you said you kind of didn't get introduced to it till 2013, but were these concepts of finances and owning a home or anything like that? Is that something you were ever even aware of as a kid? No, um, not at all. I'm second generation, so my parents were born here, but they were, I think, adapting to American life as well. So my dad has been an entrepreneur as long as I can remember. So all I really knew about home buying is, I guess, in the sense of a business, right? You buy the house, you live in it, you keep it, you sell it, you keep it moving. But I was never taught the details or what that Entailed. I didn't really know anything about buying a home until I started working in the industry. I was actually not even looking to buy a home. Um, and my dad calls me one day and he's like, hey, somebody I know, they're losing their house. Like It was somebody that their house was about to go for foreclosure. He's like, come see it after work. And at that point, I didn't have a daughter saved. I had no intention. I was like 25 years old. And I was like, I'll come see it, but I'm not in the position to buy a house right now. He's like, yeah, yeah, but it's okay. It's a really good opportunity. So I was like, I'll entertain it. So we went and I like to call it the little crack house that could, because it was, (laughs) 
<laughs> it was like this beautiful neighborhood and just that one house was just so poorly taken care of. The owner lived next door. He had stopped paying the mortgage years ago. There was a huge family that lived inside and like too many people. It was like a family of like eight in 830 square foot home. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it was riddled with termites. It was just in original condition. It had never really been updated. And I left there like in tears and I was like, how dare you want me to live here? Like, this is horrible. He's like, you got to see the big picture. And I was like, um, I'm trying. I'm really, really trying, but like, it's hard. And the house, uh, we were able to get it for $200,000. So in that neighborhood, that was pretty much a part of, but the guy just wanted to kind of get rid of it. And it was right before the market changed in the pandemic and and everything. So it was just the timing was immaculate. I didn't know how or what, but uh, my dad really did help me get into that house. And it was hard at first. It was a full renovation project. And it ended up just being probably the most important investment I think that I have made as a starter person was in that house. So it's basically doubled in equity since then. We have it rented, remodeled. And, but to answer your question, it was like, um, what's the saying? Like, fly by the seat of your pants? Yeah. Kind of like rolling with the waves. And I'm like, I guess I'm buying a house now. You know? I don't know. <laughs> so a lot of people would hear that and be like, oh, yay, that's great. That's, that would never happen to me. Or how would that, how would that even happen to me? Now, I'm going to tell you here in California, I will never find a house for $200,000 unless it's like, and I live in San Diego and I don't want to move. I've, I've lived in three other states. I grew up in San Diego. So to be back home is like a huge thing for me. So I don't plan on, on leaving. But, you know, a lot of other places are getting very expensive. So to be and, able to find a quote unquote deal like that is almost, you know, it's like kind of unheard of. So people might listen to that and be like, yay, great. How does that, well, like, how, do, how does that relate to me, right? And I understand because right now in Miami, you can't even get an apartment for $200,000 if you want to live anywhere near the city. So I understand it was just kind of, it was a, a timing thing. And the way that I can explain it is that I wasn't in the best position to buy and I wish I would have been more prepared. But considering where the market was, was pretty great. So at the time, we did get the house for 200, but let's say the value was about 235. So I did get a good deal on the house, but it wasn't that the houses in that area were necessarily half a million dollars. Like it was pretty normal. But what I guess I'm trying to say is that even though in that moment, you don't know that you're going to get a deal, you just are making an investment in a house. And that ends up being in the long term, just a greater investment because it's an appreciating asset. You know, mm. I wasn't ready, but I'm glad that I did because over time it's really shown itself to be something that's um, kind of given back to our family in a lot of ways, you know? So I guess relevant to the market now, I know that things are expensive and I know that a lot of people are still renting, but if there is anything that you can't afford, even if it's not your dream home, Go for it anyways, just because it's a stepping stone and real estate is always going to appreciate in value. So it's kind of like a savings account that you go building up, you know? Well, let's kind of start at the beginning in regards to how to even set yourself up because you said yourself, you weren't in a position and your dad helped you. 
but a lot of people aren't even in that position where their family can help them. So when you're starting from like ground zero, okay, maybe you start saving, you, you know, maybe you have a little bit of money. Like I said, I'm, I'm also thinking of myself because I'm in this, I'm in this situation, right? So I know you said that there's the financial literacy thing, but then there's also the home buyer literacy. How do people figure out like what is what and what are the things like when you're when you're like, okay, I've got the financial literacy down, or maybe I'm like, or I'm starting to, how how can I do both? How can I save financially, but also be able to get myself in a position to be able to buy a home? Where do people start in regards to those types of things? Basics of home ownership, the ABCs is income, credit, and assets. So that's like the, the triage or the triad of mortgage qualification, right? And those are just the three points that you want to make sure are in optimal shape. So credit-wise, we have so much, so many resources, I feel, that will help us get to good credit standing. And there are a lot of options too. You can get out of this an authorized user on somebody's account to help give you some credit history, especially if you haven't been in the country that long and you need to kind of give your credit a little bit of weight. And then apart from that, it's keeping your balances low. It's making sure you're not maxed out on all your cards. And then once you kind of have that and your balances are under 30% and your credit's well taken care of, then I would say move to the savings. Cause I think to tackling your debt is essentially the first step because it's going to cost you more in the long run since you're paying interest on that debt. And that would be my first step is tackle your credit at least to a reasonable amount. For FHA loans, you can go as low as 580. They even have options for people with a 550 credit score that just requires a larger down payment of 10% as opposed to three and a half. Obviously in a perfect world, the higher the credit, the better the terms, but ideally getting traditional financing like FHA and conventional come when you have a good balance of those three. So your credit's in good standing, at least, I like to say at least 620 and above for an FHA loan, even though 580 is acceptable. For conventional, the closer to 700, the better. Once you kind of have that down path, then you move on to your savings. So essentially, I am a big window shopper. I spent COVID on Zoom dates with my best friend, just looking at Zillow listings, like in different cities to see what things are like. As we all did, right? You're <laughs> looking at a mansion and I'm like, the carpet is not it, you know, like you're super judgy about Wait, it. Wait, can I just tell you my like, and I've gotten my fiance into this as well, because I love watching HGTV. And I love like watching, actually, when you were getting on, I was watching House Hunters on my phone. And I love watching like those types of things because, you know, we all have these dreams of what we want and what we don't want. And sometimes our vision is just like you, sometimes your eyes are bigger than your stomach, right? Sometimes our eyes are bigger than what our wallet is when it comes to a house. We call it manifesting. Okay. <laughs> I have pictures on my vision board of like, the house I'm going to own on the water one day. And those things become so attainable once you look at it every day and kind of just put yourself in that mindset. I just think it's, especially when it comes to real estate, those, that's very much something that you can always go after. Whether it's now or within the next 20 years, it's definitely something worth working towards. So I feel you. Uh, we were looking at mansions in California on the water and penthouses in New York. Like we were just, you know, 
live in the dream in our little living rooms. So I just think that window shopping is important, especially for ideally the one, your end goal, like your retirement home on the water with the uh, maids quarters and everything, but also the stepping stone area, the stepping stone home that you want to own. And um, a lot of people get hung up on wanting to move into the dream home, right? But they don't understand like there are the in-betweens and especially mm -hmm. to build wealth, you want to have a real estate portfolio, but you can enjoy it too. So the best way to do that is buy a home as a primary, live in it for a year or two, fix it up, then save your money, buy the next one, rent that one out. And every house can get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And before you know it, you'll be in your vision board box, you know? I but do have a vision board house, that's for sure. Yeah, we just have to we just have to divide and conquer the steps. And that's all. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people they want to step into, like, for example, I'm in my mid-40s. My fiance is about to be 49. I'm about to be 46. And it's one of those things where you're like, well, of course I want to get into something a little bit better because I'm in my forties. I'm not in my twenties, but I also feel like we, we can't do it. We do things on our own timeline, right? Because a lot of people in their twenties and thirties these days really can't afford to purchase a home because home prices are getting so high. This is what I've been reading and please like educate me if I am correct or wrong. But one of the things that I feel like we've been seeing is these investment firms buying up blocks of neighborhoods buying up as many homes as they can in a neighborhood, holding on to them, which reduces inventory, which drives prices up. Yeah. And then you see all these things, cash for home. Again, there are these investors. And if you're selling your home for cash, then you're almost making it more difficult for yourself to buy another home because now you're giving your, your home to these investment firms instead of into another family. And this is one of the reasons that prices across the country are going up. Am I correct in saying that? Oh, absolutely. But the thing is, it's not long-term. It doesn't, it's not going to pan out the way that these investors feel because even Zillow, Zillow during the pandemic ended up buying a bunch of these homes. People were willing to sell top dollar and now they're having a hard time getting rid of them. So a lot of people during the pandemic bought Airbnbs. Airbnbs are all tanking right now. The rentals are like, I think at 50% or some crazy number like that. And now people, like the inventory is coming up in another way. The problem is, is that investors are buying these homes, but considering how high the market is, in order for them to rent it for enough money, like they would have to rent it for enough to at least cover the payment and make a profit. And I think that that's where they're going to get stuck. Because even now for somebody that's buying an investment home, they've made the terms more unfavorable for investment purchases. So that even if you do get an investment home and you are putting 20% down, 30% down, you probably can't collect enough rent to cover that payment. And it's not making financial sense. So I think that's probably gonna slow the investment mindset unless you know we are talking about the corporations that are coming in with billions of dollars of cash. But even then they still have to like run their numbers and see if they are gonna get their return on their money as quick as they need to. And I think that that's going to have a big, it's going to make a big shift in that movement happening. But it is really unfortunate. It is driving up the, the cost of homes, especially in very high popular areas, like a lot of the big cities in California, 
all the big cities down here in, in Florida too are just becoming impossible, you know? So now everybody from Northern, the rest of the U.S. has moved down to Miami and now Miami people are moving up in Florida. So it's like this weird cycle of people that we have happening. That's what's happening here in San Diego. A lot of people from San Francisco, from the Bay Area and L.A. are moving down here. Look, I love you guys. Visit as often as you want. But I'm like, you guys are driving a process. <laughs> I need where like somebody put like, um, it's a picture of Florida. And it's like, here's a map of Florida. And like they labeled like Jacksonville, like Miami. And they're like, that's where you need to go. Like stop coming here. Because <laughs> the traffic post-COVID is awful. Everything down here has just gotten a lot more difficult since the pandemic. There was obviously unprecedented low rates during COVID. Like, that's why I think there was, I mean, it was crazy It was in regards to how much, how low these rates were. And then I felt like, okay, once it was getting back to like the 5%, I was like, okay, now it's kind of regulating that. This is where it was pre-COVID. But now we're into like some 7%, like some crazy rates right now. So I think it makes it even more difficult when with this type of market that we're in right now, how, what do you foresee? Like, how can people position themselves? Because I feel like it's becoming, you know, you had the baby boomers who got pensions and who could buy an intro house for $20,000, right? And they've saved it and they've stayed in those house and whatever. But each generation, I think it becomes it's become harder and harder to attain that in this market that's happening right now, how can you even position yourself? Because I think right now it's, especially when it comes to people that come from communities of color, and I know we're still talking about the Latino community and even like black communities because redlining is still a thing, you know, even though it's not stated, it's still a thing. Like, how do you position yourself in this type of market to be able to buy a home? It's like a, you have to stay ready kind of thing. Two years ago, when the prices were already skyrocketing, um, I had essentially worked on my credit. I had worked on paying off all of my debt. And I just saved as much as I could with no with no goal. There was not a prize at the end or like something I was working towards. But I just saved and saved as much as I could. And the opportunity came where I found a house that I liked. And it just kind of fell out of the sky. I was printing flyers for a realtor of mine. And I was just like, I love this house. And it was um it was crazy because the house that weekend had the line around the block two days in a row. I was sitting here passing out flyers to the house that I wanted, right? And I'm sitting here, I'm like, I don't know how that I have to make it work. They accepted another offer that was coming in like seventy thousand dollars over value. And it just it was just nothing I could ever compete with because at the same time, I'm not gonna do that, you know. Yeah. Even at it, I wouldn't. And I just was like that contract fell through and I was following up with the realtor and I was like how's it going how's it going he's like I don't know what little candles you're lighting or what gods you're praying to (laughs) it's falling apart at the seams I don't appreciate whatever you're doing and I'm like I'm so sorry to hear that like smiling and (laughs) the deal did fall through and I just told him I'm like look I'm very ready and I'm like I have the savings I have my credit I have my income reported this would be the easiest closing that you have ever had here. And I just think that in terms of buying, even if somebody's not in a position to do so right now, it's just a matter of 
making sure your credit's in good standing, that you have your money saved, and that your income is solid, especially if you're self-employed. That's the biggest downfall where I see that people are making oodles of money for their own businesses, but instead of paying, they don't want to pay the IRS, which is totally understandable. We don't like doing that. But then when they really find the house that they want, they're not ready because they've expensed all of their income on the taxes. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more Wine and Cheese Minute. Let's talk about that <laughs> because I think that's important because you see all of these things saying like, lease your car, pay your car through your business, do this through your business, do this through your business, do this through your business. So what should you do and what shouldn't you do if you do want to buy a home when it comes to, especially if you're self-employed and how you're paying yourself and how you're paying the other things around you? So a couple of things. If my personal opinion is if I had to pay someone $30,000, I'd rather put it towards my home instead of paying the IRS, right? Because it's like putting money back in your own pocket, essentially. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is that we do have alternative options for people that are self-employed and don't report all their income on their taxes, but those programs do require larger down payments. So when you're going the conventional route, yes, the rate's going to be better. The down payment requirement's going to be less, but you're going to need to have that reported income on your tax returns for at least two years. And if the business has been open for more than five years, we can go off of one year of taxes. But at that point, you have now the bill of the IRS and then also your down payment and closing costs. And then if you want to kind of gear that differently, we can just allocate all the funds to go towards the house and just come in with a larger down payment. You don't have to also have the bill of the IRS. So there's options. But when it comes down to being self-employed, if you can, if you are going to take out a vehicle, I recommend that you put as many things to be paid by the business as possible because that takes the liability off of your personal credit, which is what gets looked at when you're qualifying. Got it. So Let's say you come to me and you're like, I want to get pre-approved. You have a thousand dollar car payment, which is totally fine. But that that now knocks off a thousand dollars a month of a monthly payment that I could qualify you for. So two things, if you can get it under the, the business, great. If you still need to personally guarantee it, just make sure that the payments are coming from the business account for minimum 12 months. If I can see 12 consistent months of the payments coming from your business account, I don't have to count that liability against your qualification. For example, I have a car payment. I think it's like, it's under $400. It's like 360 or something. Mm -hmm. And it's under my name. But if I used my business account to pay for that for at least 12 months, then that would be okay? Absolutely. That way I don't have to hit you with that debt. And that gives me $400 more a month that that I can qualify you for. And then that's where my other point comes in. Try to establish a separation between your personal finances and your business finances. A lot of people open LLCs. They don't get EINs. They don't get the business bank accounts. Everything runs through their personal business. That's a lot harder to dissect and explain and verify because you could be getting a payment from your sister. And if not, you could get a payment from a client, but it's a lot harder to differentiate that. And there's not a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. No, I get that because I actually just got my LLC. I do now have an EIN, but when I started my account, I started it. It's a, it's my business account. It's what I use for business. 
but it's under my personal name because I did want to separate it. But now I have to like move it over to a real business account now that I have an EIN. Congratulations. (laughs) That's important, you know? You know what? It's honestly, it's very, oh, it can be very overwhelming, especially when you first start. You're like, oh my gosh, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. So, you know, even if people are thinking about starting the business or they have a business or they've just started a business, like these are, I got you guys because this is what I'm going through too, right? So it's really interesting because I'm trying to ask questions, not only for everybody who's listening or watching, but even for my own personal like stuff. But we were talking, but before we got on line, we were talking about that there's all these types of loans, right? You were talking about FHA, conventional, obviously, if you're a veteran, you would have a VA loan. Like there's all of these different types of loans. What are the questions that people need to ask to make sure that who they're working with has their best interest at heart and what type of loans they should be getting? That's a great question. Because it's like something that's so common. Like I I can look at a file and tell you this is the best fit, right? Essentially, what you really want to ask for is kind of a side-by-side comparison and say, what would my numbers look like if I was trying to get an FHA loan? And what would my numbers look like if I was going to national? Typically, when you have a stronger credit profile and really strong income, conventional would be ideal. Because the mortgage insurance could be a little bit more favorable. Eventually, it can come off without you having to do a refinance. FHA has a little bit more wiggle room with us, with allowing you to hold a little bit more debt. And it's more lenient when it comes down to credit score. The only kind of downfall there is with FHA is that you're going to have mortgage insurance for the life of the loan until you refinance or unless you put 10% down or more. So I guess it just really depends on the credit profile of who's applying. But essentially, you just want to ask for your options. And you want to see, like, what are my down payment requirements? FHA, typically 3.5% is it. Conventional, if you're a first-time home buyer, you do have the option of bringing 3% down. It is available, and some people do use it. I personally don't love to sell that option because it drives up the interest rate and the and the mortgage insurance part of your payment. So you'd have to be comfortable taking a higher payment in order to come in with less cash. You know, VA loans are 100% financing, so you only need closing cost funds. And then occasionally, there's a good down payment assistance program, too. So I know in California, I think you guys had the DREAM Act, right? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Okay, we had this. And I was so sad because literally within like 48 hours, all the money was gone. Uh Yeah. Because I I forget how much, but basically they gave you, basically the state was giving you 20%, your 20% down payment. And then if you kept it, you would pay that back with, I think, minimal interest. The interest wasn't very big, wasn't very large when you sold the home. So obviously that's like, oh my gosh, it was really to help people get in. But with it, because people were already in the process, if you were already in the process, you could apply. And then all of a sudden, like all that money is gone. And I was like so excited. And then I'm like, oh, well, never mind. Just kidding, because that money's already gone. <laughs> we had Hometown Heroes program, which was only 5% assistance. Okay, like nowhere near 20. When they started the program a year ago, it was $100 million and it was only for frontline workers, nurses, firefighters, cops, teachers. That lasted about 10 months. July 1st of this year, 
They funded the account for another hundred million, open to anybody as um, a full-time worker, any anyone self-employed, W-2, as long as they were full-time Florida residents and first-time home buyers, and the hundred million ran out in 53 days. Yeah. It was like the craziest thing I've I think that's also another thing, right? Because there's so many different programs out there, even from cities to counties, not just from the state, not just federal programs, but literally there's programs for teachers. There's programs for, like you said, first responders. There's programs for all of these. So how do you even go about looking for that? Because, I mean, I know that your loan officer should probably know about all of these things. However, if you're working with somebody and I think it's obviously we need to try and do as much research as possible. So we're coming in with the right questions, right? So where do people start trying to look for what programs are even available to be able to have the conversation with their loan officer? Because let's be real, most people should have the buyers in mind, but then there's also a couple of people who have themselves in mind. So how do we what are like, where do we look so we have information to make sure that we're not being taken advantage of? Let's see. It's just a matter of doing your homework online and just looking up like county, you know, it's usually county based adopt payment assistance programs and just presenting the information to your loan officer. Some of them are favorable, but some of them, when you actually read the details of it, are kind of sneaky like I know that there was one recently that was a down payment assistance but it had a shared equity contingency and what that meant was that they'll lend you the money but if you sell the house within year one to three the county keeps any equity that you gain on the house and then if you sell within year three to five they keep 50 percent and so forth. And then after year seven, you can keep all the equity. But then at that point, people often don't stay in their homes that long. Sometimes they do, but usually there's a refinance involved. And another thing, anytime, that's the other, I can go on with this forever. So people get really excited because they're like, great, I have down payment assistance. But what a lot of people don't realize is the minute that you sell, refinance, or pay off the loan in any way, you have to pay that money back. It's usually not free money. So yes, we have down payment assistance. They're the ones that dictate the interest rate for the loan. So let's just say that's a seven and a half. But what happens in a year or two when the rates go back down, everybody's going to want to refinance and they don't realize that they're going to have to pay this amount back in full. And that's where being prepared for me is just, that's like, I, I drill that. I'm like, you guys understand, right? That if the rates go down next year and then they're like, okay, we get it. And I'm like, do you still want, you know, I always give them the information and then I just make sure they do want to proceed with them because I don't want them to call me in a year and be like, you didn't tell me, you know? Yeah. So it's just a matter of understanding the ins and outs of the down payment assistance programs. There is no such thing as free money. The government doesn't super get excited about us buying houses. Like, cause you know, like the Cubans, right? They're like, Biden me está diciendo que por primer comprador, I'm like, Biden does not know who <laughs> does not care that much that you're buying a house. If anything, the county is offering this because they're going to make their money one way or another. You know, the house never yeah. is. I love how we tend to give so much power to the president and we're like, who, regardless of who it is, right? Oh, they're making the gas rates go up and you're like, he, they have nothing to do with that. Like, come on. <laughs> And I'm like, it got to the point where I'm like, send me the article and I will look into it for you. I never got the article. 
And <laughs> was that I did get somebody's picture of their TV. <laughs> and it was like Univision, like Telemundo or something. And it had like a picture of Biden and it said like $7,000 for first time home buyers. And I'm like, but where? Like there's, and then there's a lot of bills that are working on being passed, but they're not, they never make it to be passed. So mm-hmm. people get kind of stuck, especially the Latino community. They're, um, what I consider headline readers. Yeah. Headline reader. Yes. But Latinos. Perfect for clickbait. Perfect for clickbait. Yes. And it's like, just open it and read it like a little bit more and you'd understand, you know, and that's where um, my other emphasis comes in where I'm like, I know that the Latino community is very underserved in Spanish material for home buying preparation. And uh, I'm I'm working on it. I speak fluent Spanish because I'm a Miami native, but I'm trying to work on putting together respectable information in Spanish. You know, because mm. Spanish is a little broken. But I just think that it's important that they have this information so that they can plan. Sometimes they really just catch you off guard. I, I had a, a a family of four that was working, you know, part time. And they all had above 700 credit scores and they had a great savings and they were in a better position to buy than what they thought, you know, but it's really just a matter of of that. So what I was touching base on before is like credit assets, which is just saving up your money and making it grow for you. So I'm saying like use high yield savings accounts, you know, IRA accounts are great. And then your income, you just want to make sure that if you are a W2 employee, your income is steady. If you are self-employed, you're reporting enough income on your taxes, which means you're setting, when you get paid, you're setting aside some money to pay back to the IRS. Mm-hmm. Like something. The best thing that you can do, even if you're not planning on buying right now, is just talk to a loan officer. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't take up a lot of time. There are soft credit inquiry options, so we're not hitting your credit, but we can take a look at your profile and say, what do you want to qualify for? And this is what you need to get to. So you take down your notes, you take down your estimate, and then for the next year, you can really work um, intentionally towards that goal that you have of homeownership where you are saving your money, you are reporting your income, and you are paying down your debt. So you're in an optimal position within a year to be able to make a a seamless move instead of kind of struggling at the end. The other thing that I've seen, and I don't know if if you're on TikTok or not, but I've seen like these skits. And where it's like one girl, she's the loan officer and she then she's posing as like the client as well. And they're really funny, but these are like really true stories. How can we avoid this? Because like, I think there was one where, oh yeah. Oh, like one is, oh, well, I want, I'm going to go with this loan officer because they're giving me a cheaper rate. And then she's talking about, but you're paying this much. If Like, what are those things? Because I'm sure you've experienced them. But if you're working with somebody like, and then somebody else is like, well, I'll give you a cheaper rate, but then you're paying less, less. I mean, I think that's always confusing, right? Points versus interest rate and all of those. Like, how can people like really understand what's going on? Because I think that can be really, really confusing. And then you want to jump to somebody else because you think you're getting a better deal. How do you really know if you're actually getting a better deal and who you should work with? Ask for loan estimates. And that's going to be your biggest indicator is like, if you're offering me this, I need to see it in writing. 
um, you'll be able to compare because where you see that something might be lower on one end, it might be higher on another. So to explain the point system, basically when we input your file, we'll get a grid with different interest rates and different costs. Typically, there's what we call a par interest rate, which is the rate that's available without you really paying any money or any points for it. So if you want a lower rate, you pay more points, like every rate has a cost. And then the opposite is true, which was more favorable during the pandemic, is that you can take a higher interest rate and instead of it costing you money, it's actually giving you credit back towards your closing costs. During the pandemic, when rates were very low, that was awesome because let's say instead of getting a 2.75, you can get a 3.25 and you're getting $6,000 towards your closing costs, right? That's not so much utilized now, but just so you understand how like our grid works. So let's say I tell you, all right, here's a 7%. It's not costing you any money. And then the next loan officer is like, I can do six and a half. But when you get your loan estimate, that six and a half is now costing you $5,000. And that's where you can kind of see the difference. Now, if you really want to get to the back end schematics of it, is that usually the loan officer compensation, whenever somebody's offering you a credit to help you buy down the rate, it comes from their, their commission. So at that point, it's just to see which loan officer is willing to do the job for less money, which isn't fun, but I'll just give you an example. I had a client that I had worked with her for almost three years because her house, she bought a new construction home and it took almost three years to complete, right? I've earned my pay on this loan. Like I, the, the longer a loan lasts, like the harder it gets, because especially when years pass, because like, are you reporting enough income on your taxes every year? And is your credit still in good standing? And they had like a late payment and it's a lot of like upkeep. And a week before closing, she's like, oh, my cousin's friend says that they can get me and I'm like, get it in writing. Let me see it. And sure enough, that person was offering them a lower rate, but was making like $3,000, for example, right? Which is considering the size of their loan, it's not very much. And I'm like, yeah, because at the end, all the work is done. Yeah. And it was just like, uh, really Did she just, end up going with you or with the other person? She did. I I budged a bit on my end, more than I would like to admit, but it was like, at this point, I had just worked so hard on it that I'm like, I'd rather close it. So it just, it's hard because we do work very diligently on earning our pay, but then sometimes it gets a little bit competitive, especially in places like where I live, where people are willing just, just to like spite you. They're like, I'll do it for like $5 less. And people are like, okay, <laughs> you know? But that's where it starts to come into play. And that's how the point system works for interest rates. And yeah, so it's really just a matter of getting everything in writing and just comparing apples to apples. And then just feel out, like building trust with the people that I work with is something I take pride in. Because there's times where I've looked at a loan estimate and I'm like, I can't compete with this. Like I would take the deal. And that's okay because at this point I build trust with that person. And even if it's not that deal, They'll usually call me or refer me someone else later down the line because they trusted I gave them their best interest advice. Right. I think it's just a matter of interviewing loan officers and seeing like who you feel comfortable dealing with. And that person is going to be honest with you no matter what, you know. And there's there's times where I've been higher costs in a little way or another, but then the clients prefer my service. So then they'll stick with me. And that's kind of just what I 
what I love to do. The other thing that I've seen in these skits, right? And I like to use these skits because I know that they're like real life examples is when people make a large purchase when it's close to their closing costs. What are the things like, okay, I got my stuff in order. I found the house. We got approved for the loan. We're heading towards closing. What are the things that I need to avoid within and for how long when you find the house and when you're starting to do like going through the loan process? Do not quit your job. Do not buy a car. Do not co-sign for anyone because even if your cousin is like, can you co-sign this car? You're like, it's fine. It's not my car. I'm just co-signing. It doesn't matter. That's on your credit report and it's your responsibility and it's your payment. Those are just the big three. Don't quit your job. Don't open new lines of credit. Don't co-sign for anybody. Like you just have to financially. For how long do you want to not do those things? Until you close. So if you do those things prior to even applying for a loan, it's one thing. But once you've applied for the loan, nothing until you close. Correct. So you can utilize your debt like regular. Like if you use your credit cards, you pay them. That's okay. But anything out of the ordinary, just try to wait. If you need to change jobs, just talk to your loan officer first because maybe you're getting a raise. That's fine, but like, do you have enough time to document the movement? It might just complicate the process a little bit. So my advice is always, if you're going to switch jobs, just try to try to do anything remarkable just after closing. And that's yeah. it. You know, literally we found a place that two blocks away from us, neighborhood we liked, everything. And the day we were going to go look at it, it was the day I got let go from work. I got laid off. <laughs> so now we're like, Wah, wah, never mind. <laughs> you know what? Timing is, I think, like, like your intuition and timing and the way things work. It's funny because I'm sure that it, I'm sure, like, at some point later on, you're going to laugh because there's a reason why that, that didn't happen, you know? Yes. The other thing is also when you're buying a house with somebody else, they use, from what I understand, they use the lowest credit score to determine your rate and everything, right? Why is that? The bank is always going to go conservative. So with them, it's always worst case scenario. Like when it comes down to certain guidelines, when it comes down to credit, when it comes down to anything, the bank is always risk-wise going to assess the worst case scenario to protect themselves. So it's like um, somebody told me once, like the power in any relationship lies in the person that carries the least, you know? So like, you can love somebody with all your heart, but if they don't love you back, there's no relationship, right? right. And the same thing applies when it comes down to credit because you can have the best credit in the world, but if your partner's not financially responsible, then the chances of him continuing to do that are probably not as high just because it's a mortgage. It's a larger liability now. Mm-hmm. They just always go with um, with a more conservative now. One of the things that you had really kind of addressed and everything was not only like what you should do, but how uh, you believe that Latinas and women in general should take the step into the sales side of the mortgage business. Share more with me why you think that and what does that mean? So I spent about seven years in an operations position in this business, right? 
And I was really good at my job. Like I was just like always got things done and I was very organized and just very on top of things. And I just always was like, wow. Like I thought that sales was like, like a finesse, like a magical thing that I had to learn. Right. I would often ask my bosses who were often men, like, please don't forget about me. Like I wanted to do a good job at ops. So eventually I could get graduated to sales. What I didn't realize for a long time is that it's harder to find operations people in this business than it is to find salespeople in this business. So I was constantly like new loan officer would come in and new loan officer would come in. And then they never planned on moving me because I was great at what I was doing. Because you were you like a processor? Is that what you I, were doing? I was a processor. So I was like I was a um an assistant like to the top producers, and then I was also a processor. So when you're really good at doing the paper stuff, they never want to move you from because that's a delicate process, right? But I'm grateful that it happened that way because when you understand the process that deep from the back end, you're unstoppable at the front. So I was always so scared to take that step into, I had my license for years and I didn't originate because I thought it was like this very difficult thing to like sell a mortgage. And um, I was working for my last boss. I had two managers at the time. I worked for one of them directly. And so there was another guy that came in and he kind of was assisting, but he became a loan officer and he moved on. So uh, it was around Christmas time, 2019. And I, I told my boss at the time, I'm like, hey, like, please don't forget me. I don't want to stay in this position. I want to go into sales. And he's like, okay. He's like, I'm going to mentor you, but maybe he's like, I'm, we're going to aim for April 1st, like quarter two, for you to go on your own as a loan officer. And I was like, okay, I, great, I can do that. So January came and he was just not around very much. And I became very resourceful and like problem solving with my operations team. So my best friends were underwriters processors. Like they were the ones that really taught me what I needed to know about loans. February came and went no movement, our team wasn't growing. He was just like keeping me there. And then March came and I talked to my other manager and I was like, man, I'm really frustrated. I'm like, I haven't been able to build a pipeline for myself. I don't have a realtor or a lead. I don't, I don't know what to do, but I, I need to like, because April 1st is going to come and then I'm not going to get a paycheck for months because the process of getting a client, nourishing that relationship and finding a house it's three or four months before you see a paycheck, right? We were still having that conversation and I'm like, I really want to to do this. And he's like, you're not ready. And I'm like, well, why not? And he's like, you're too technical. You're too operations minded. He's like, I don't think you're ready for sales. And that was like the turning point for me because I remember I said, I owe it to myself to try. I've been for seven years if it doesn't work I'll just go back to being an assistant it's not a big deal and he's like I don't know and then the next day I came in they took all my loans and they're like okay go to the bullpen and just like that I didn't have a salary and I was like okay well <laughs> I asked for this and that was March 10th and it's important because a week later we all got sent home for COVID lockdown so had I stayed in my position to April 1st I would have never done it because I would have never made the move in the middle of the pandemic, right? Right. So I'll go home and I don't have a loan, a lead, a prospect, a realtor. I don't have anything. 
And I'm like, this is going to be. Wait, let me ask, how scared were you at that point? Because it was something you asked for. It was something you wanted. And now you get thrown and you're like, wait. So like, how scary was that for you? Terrifying. It was terrifying because I wasn't making a whole lot to begin with. So basically, I always, I've always kept more than one job. I'm like multifunctional. So I always worked tax season at my best friend's office. And that was like my seasonal income for the beginning of the year. And thankfully, I had put that money aside. So that was my savings. And that's what I lived off of for a little bit of time. And then it just became um, like I had one person that I knew that reached out to me and I couldn't help them. And then they referred me someone else and they referred me someone else. So um, you know how they there are pandemic babies, right? Mm-hmm. I was like a pandemic loan officer because I, <laughs> I built my whole business, like curled up at my desk like this. And like, I didn't have to go to networking events. And I was like, this is great because I am not very savvy when it comes to like large environments like that. And um, I built a fully referral-based business. I did great um, my first year. And given, I know that, the pandemic was a great time for my industry, but I did really well my first year. I closed about $12 million in loans. And I realized, and the reason why, you know, I think it's important for women and Latinas to get into the sales space is because we are extremely organized. And I think that the way that we can nurture this process for home buyers is very special. Like men are very cut and dry. But this is an emotional process. People are buying a home. It's a huge investment. They've saved their money for this. They need a little bit of handholding. And I just think that women have so much of a gift to be able to offer that to people to make them feel really comfortable about this process, especially if they have the operations background where they can fully understand and explain why things are needed or how things are going to be done or the steps and I've seen the difference and my strength in this job is being operations minded and very technical which is what my manager told me was my weakness in doing sales I've had people that have bought six homes right and they're like nobody's ever explained this to me nobody's ever explained the points and the interest rate things to me because I'm transparent I'll send them my grid and I'm like here are the options of the rates and this is what it's going to cost so I always thought that sales was this magical ethereal thing, but with mortgages, it's math. It's you qualify for something or you don't. Like right. formula, it's not a secret. Like qualifying for a house is not a super secret job. Like figuring out where your numbers are is quite simple to understand. Like if somebody takes the time to explain it to you and getting prepared for that movement is, is essentially just, an ABC process. Not that it's easy, but not that it's easy to do, but it's easy to compartmentalize, right? And right. Uh, I just think that I've seen so many of my friends personally that are stuck in these sales, I'm sorry, in the operations positions forever because the the guys that they're working for usually keep them down because it's easy. They, they meet a client, they get a number, they pass it on. At that point, the girls are the ones that call, connect documents qualify do everything so it's like why not make your money in that space why are you doing this for someone else I want to kind of hone in on something you said because just like I said when when I did work in the mortgage industry this is something I noticed too 
all the people behind the scenes were all women and all the loan officers were mostly men. Everyone, you would have maybe one or two females, but they were mostly men. And then everybody who's handling it, who's processing it, who's saying, this is what I need. This is what I need. This is what I need for all women. So why, like, as a woman, it obviously took you a lot to be able to kind of break in after seven years of being on the operations side. But as a Latina, did you feel that extra pressure as a Latina that was like, shit, if I don't perform, that's it. Like they're not gonna, because not just for you, but maybe for another Latina who's coming behind you, did you ever feel that pressure? Or do you feel that pressure currently even? I do. Luckily, since our demographic down here is mostly Latinos, it's not so much. But where I see the difference is that when I've worked events that are out of town or whenever I'm not in Miami or I'm out somewhere else and I meet somebody else that might be Latino in a more um, American-dominated city, is that they're so grateful, like, oh, like, I can talk to you because you understand my background, right? Like, you understand my money traumas. You understand why we have mattress money which is you know it's like an immigrant thing right it's like yeah. oh, I have my savings but it's under my bed and I'm like no why that's like no good for mortgage purposes you know because we can't use cash deposits and a lot of times they don't feel comfortable talking to anybody about it and um I don't know I I just think that there's so much untapped potential in women and in Latina women in the scene like behind the scenes that when brought to the forefront is so beautiful and I've seen a lot of the girls that I used to work with that were all assistants they got together they opened up a mortgage brokerage and they hire women only and I'm like I love that and they're killing it like I'm just like their biggest cheerleader online like you guys are amazing and um and just to see so many pictures of closings where people are new to this country and have been able just to get on the ball and like acquire the homeownership within the first couple of years and be able to give that to their family is like priceless. Like it's so rewarding to see those stories come up, you know, because they they get here and they're like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm working, I'm saving, I'm trying my best. Like, what can I do? And you're like, okay, like great. Like let's put this together. We're gonna make this happen, you know? Even if that means everybody gets on the loan together. <laughs> right. Oh, I've definitely seen those loans where it's like four people on the loan. And dad and son have the same name. Like that's my that's been like my favorite one so far. <laughs> so you have like Mario Garcia and his son is Mario Garcia. And the only way to tell them apart is the socials. And it's like insane. So if somebody does want to get into this and they're like, oh my gosh, this sounds like I would love to be able to help others and I would love to da-da-da. Where do you even start? Like it just feels like it's if you've never worked in mortgage or if you've or if you've thought about it or, or whatever, or even if you're on the operational side, obviously, if you're on the operational side, it probably is a little bit easier or maybe not. I mean, but if somebody's like, wow, I think I could do this and this is something that I want, where do they even start with that? That's a great question, mostly because there is no career path for mortgage professionals in school. So nobody ever grows up going like, I can't wait to be a loan officer, right? <laughs> It's like, it's really a job that finds you. Like I answered a Craigslist ad in Comic Sans for an assistant and that's what I found. And that's how I got here. Honestly, I would talk to somebody, usually somebody knows somebody that knows somebody that's a loan officer. 
kind of pick their brain as to what goes into doing the job. And where you start, if, if it's a decision that you want to make, I think that getting your license first without working in the industry gives you an advantage because what you do at work and what you learn in class are two different things. What kind of license does somebody have to get? It's an MLO license. So it's a 24-hour course. You can do it in a three-day weekend. You take the course, you take the test for the course, and then you study for the national test. And then you get your license. And then I think like while you're in the process of getting your license, you can start, my personal opinion is start working alongside somebody who is in the business. So you understand what to ask for, what to look for, how to read a credit report, how to calculate income, and just take that opportunity to really learn. And then at that point, when you feel comfortable, is it not that every file, every file is definitely not the same, but the basis of it or the questions you have to ask are pretty much the groundwork is the same on each file, right? How many people are applying? What does your credit look like? What do their bank statements look like? What does their income look like? Do we have these documents? And once you learn how to read the documents, the puzzle pieces kind of come together, you know? Yeah. Well, and then on and then, the opposite side, okay, I'm ready to buy a house or I'm ready to start looking. I have a realtor. Do do I have to go look for a loan officer? Does my realtor refer me? Like, what is that, you know, process from the other, from a buyer side? That's up to you. Usually the realtor has a preferred lender. You can always have a conversation with that person and figure out if it's a fit. Usually you can either look online or just ask for recommendations. Some people do go to like Chase, Bank of America and the larger banks. The only reason why I don't or that doesn't work out sometimes is because those banks are depository banks. They don't specialize in mortgage. So usually if it's not like a really easy file, they'll tell you that you don't qualify. Sometimes a loan needs a little bit of massaging, a little bit of creativity. And typically loan, like us, like mortgage brokers, like people that only focus on residential lending for a living can have the answer. So kind of don't take no for an answer until you've talked to a few different people. Some people feel comfortable going to the bank first. That's where they have all their money. That's a good place to start, but don't end there until you find a relationship that you like. But typically it would be a referral-based or a research-based um, opportunity, I feel. Vanessa, it's already been an hour. Can you believe that? <laughs> oh my God, thank you. I'm just, I could talk about this like, No, day. I love it because you have a lot of information, a lot of wealth of information. And I think it's so important because we, we have talked on the podcast about financial literacy. I'm actually going to have a friend from uh, Mayra from Debt Free Latina come on at some point. And she doesn't focus on the investment side. She really focuses on like the, the debt and how to pay off your debt. You know, so we've talked, I've talked to other people in regards to like the investment side and everything like that, but we have to understand each, each thing. Yeah. Each component to be able to get to the point where we can say, okay, I'm reaching out to Vanessa now because I'm ready. So if we don't understand those things, it makes it much harder to get to somebody like you. That's the impact I want to make on the We All Grow community. So like, you know, one of my mentors and best friends is Vanessa Santos, which I know she put it in such. Yes, um, I love Vanessa. There's just all the girls in the community. We have somebody that can talk about credit. We have somebody that can talk about savings. We have all these resources. So essentially long-term, I would love to put together kind of like a panel of combining these women that have these strengths in these fields. 
to kind of talk a little bit about them independently and then give our community kind of like the room to consult with the group and just kind of get into that optimal position to be able to buy for wherever they live. Personally, I'm licensed currently in Florida and Michigan. I know that the We All Grow community is mostly West Coast based. Hopefully I'll get my license over there soon. Me, I'm one of those. But either way, I want to make sure that they're, you guys feel comfortable talking to me so that I can still help you no matter what with attaining your goals to get to what you want. You know, I don't mind looking at your finances. It doesn't matter if you're in Alaska. It's fine. Just I want to give that back because I think that women especially need to take more in charge of their money and just know where they're going with it and be able to have space in the real estate world where they own investment properties and they are collecting rent and they are offering homes to other families. And I just think that there's so much room for opportunity for women to really have their seat at the table in this business, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, If people want to get more information from you, if they want to reach out, if they're like, look, where, like, can you tell me where I'm at? Like, what should I work on or anything like that? How can people reach you? Instagram, I think, would be the quickest way. It's at Exclusive Capital Lending. I pretty much monitor the account myself. So anything that comes through there, I'll be able to see it. And we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. But Vanessa, I always want to give my guests like a final opportunity to share anything else or get any other like information maybe that we didn't talk about. So is there anything else that you would like to share before we close out? You're like, yes, another two hours. <laughs> Honestly, it's I know homeownership is completely attainable. And not only for the sake of providing a home for yourself, but for building your generational wealth. And I just think that it's really important that we see how accessible that is if we just really take the right steps. Yeah. I think it's important to know that too, because I feel like right now, so many of us, and sometimes myself included. I mean, I'm trying, you know, I'm like, no, we're going to get this. No, we're going to like manifest and everything. But sometimes you're like, oh. you know, especially right now with the rates so high, it feels like it's not. I mean, obviously it's not as easy as 30 years ago, but it's still attainable. So I think that's something that we need to make sure we keep in mm-hmm. mind and not shut the door on ourselves, right? Absolutely. And I think that even though it's, it's hard right now, it's still worth taking the step because it's only going to get harder as we move along. And if we can just lock something in now, even if it's a little something, even if you don't live in it right away, it just brings you so much value. Because remember, every time you pay your rent, you're just paying somebody else's mortgage. Mm-hmm. It's 100% interest. Yep. Yeah. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for sharing so much wealth of information. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mi gente, her contact information, her Instagram, the link to her Instagram will be in the show notes. And until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, 
please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated, and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.